I don't know exactly what our exit strategy is, but I kind of keep in my mind this idea of my guiding principle is a quote that I heard from Andrew Marinoff on a podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts because I drive around an awful lot delivering product. But he had this great quote. You have to ask yourself, do you want to build a brand or do you want to be part of the party? And a lot of the money and a lot of the investment and a lot of the brands that I see out there, it feels like they're created by people who just want to be a part of the party. Welcome to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping beverage alcohol businesses grow and thrive. I'm Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey. This season, we're focused on drink startups. How does a brand go from idea to launch and then plot a path to success? What hurdles do brands face along the way and how can they overcome those challenges? Stay tuned as we investigate. As journalists covering the drinks business over the past decade, and working for BevAlk startups ourselves, we've seen our share of spectacular failures. We've also seen some incredible successes, and that got us wondering, why do some companies shrivel and die while others go on to thrive? So this season, we're on the hunt for answers. And here we are in our first episode. Are you excited? I'm excited. Well, we're starting out today with a conversation with Christy Frank, founder of Hamlet Hound. It's a line of premium canned cocktails. Now, Christie's had a really interesting career in the drink space, including working at Moet Hennessy on both spirits and wine brands. She then went on to found and run two well-respected wine shops in New York and now has developed her own brand. We'll be following Hamlet Hound's story. We'll also be talking to experts from around the drinks industry to find out what it takes for new brands to succeed. Let's give it a listen. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At The Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Tell us about Hamlet Hound. So Hamlet Hound. Hamlet Hound is a canned cocktail. We do two flavors right now. It's focused on brown spirits. So we have a bourbon and cola and a rye and ginger. And they clock in at about 15% alcohol. So they're definitely on the higher end of the market in terms of that sort of alcohol level. A lot of the canned cocktails that are out there, in some ways, they're kind of made to be really sessionable. So you don't necessarily taste what you're actually drinking. That's not the point of Hamlet Hound. We very much want it to have a kick. We want you to know that you're drinking a proper cocktail. So Christy, where were you when you came up with this idea? (laughs) Um, Well, it was, I think, I was in the initial, the initial conversation was in a bar with a couple business school friends uh, and my husband. We were, this would have been probably February 2020. And 
probably the last drink we had before the pandemic started. And at that point, it was a conversation about distilleries and excess capacity and how everybody wanted to open a distillery in every you know, little urban center, and then realize that it takes a lot of work to open a distillery and you have to figure out where you're going to sell your product. And then we were seeing distilleries opening restaurants and tasting rooms. So now you have a distillery and you have a restaurant, which are two very different business models, and you have all this product and you have to figure out how to sell it. So that was the little genesis of this idea of realizing there was an awful lot of really good brown spirits in particular, because all of these distilleries are sort of based on, let's do a local bourbon. That was this initial conversation. And then a few months later, everybody's cooped up, It must have been the summer of 2020. We started this text thread with my business school friends and and my husband about, hey, what if we were to do a canned cocktail? And I was like, what kind of canned cocktail would you do? And both of my friends were thinking, well, I would do something low alcohol. I would jump on the wellness trend. And I'm a little bit of a contrarian. So I was like, yeah, no, I don't think I would. What about a high proof brown spirits based cocktail in a can making use of all this great product that's out there? And they were like, yeah, no, I think maybe wellness. And I was like, no, maybe. And just kind of left the conversation, went out there. And my husband and I started doing the research to figure out what would this take? Could we do it? Do you remember what you were drinking at the bar? We were probably, I think we were drinking some sort of gin and tonic and some sort of bourbon-based cocktails. Aha, uh-huh. so you were, you were in the space. White Claw was big at the time. But of course, the point about White Claw is that it was low alcohol. And you're talking about something with 15% alcohol. So at the time, the conversation around White Claw was this idea that they were going to take over the world and nobody was going to drink cocktails and nobody was going to drink wine. They were only going to be drinking low alcohol beverages and White Claw. And I've been in this industry a while. I know that there really aren't a lot of new ideas under the sun. White Claw was basically Zima, but done really well and in a can. At the time, you know, kind of stepping back and looking at that space, White Claw was great because what it did was it made cans an acceptable an acceptable format for cocktails. So this industry tends to be fairly reactive and everybody was going after, let's do what White Claw is doing. But we looked at that can opportunity and said, hey, people are people are becoming comfortable drinking beverages in cans. Nobody is putting something that's higher end, that's a little bit more flavorful into a can. Let's attempt to do that. I'm also a bit of a, of a contrarian. Is it that nobody wanted a 15% brown spirits-based cocktail in a can, or had nobody just thought about doing it? So one of the conversations that that I had had with the same group of friends, the second one back in August, was this idea of if we were going to do a canned cocktail, what would you do? And they were very much, we would do something low alcohol, we would do something white spirits-based. And at the time, it's like, that's what everybody is doing. I would do something different. They were thinking wellness. The market had its eye on wellness at the time. I come from a luxury goods background. I wanted to do decadence. You know, it's interesting because I have really noticed that shift over just the past, you know, year and a half to two years where we first saw a ton of the hard seltzers come on to the market. And now the hard seltzer growth is actually slowing. And where we're seeing a lot of traction is with those premium priced and also higher ABV RTDs. So those canned and bottled cocktails that, you know, feel like a real cocktail experience. And I I think you're not just seeing that, you know, on retail shelves. I mean, 
airlines have turned to these RTDs to boost their premium offerings. You know, you see uh, these canned margaritas from Moth on British Airways. You know, you see Cosmopolitans on Lufthansa. Like, there's all of these bottled and canned cocktails starting to pick up, even in the bar space. And I think I think it's because you know there's just more pressure on staffing at bars, so they're finding all of these niches that previously you know didn't really we didn't foresee this happening a couple of years ago. You're sitting at the bar and you're talking about the excess of brown spirits. How did you know there was an excess? So I've been my first wine store job was back in I don't even want to name the year 1995. So I've been in the industry for a long a long, long time. I'd seen this. Everybody wants to open a distillery. Right. The wine and spirits industry is a weird industry. It just makes people do strange things with their money. And there was this trend towards, we're going to open a distillery in Atlanta. We're going to open a distillery in Ohio. And I had a wine shop. I owned a wine shop in New York City and was a buyer for many years. And those sorts of locally based premium distillery products were fantastic. They were delicious, but they were a little bit of a novelty. You know, you go to Ohio. Ohio, you go to Columbus, you visit a distillery, it's great, it's fantastic. You buy a bottle and you take it home. But once you're home, you're probably not going to want to go seek out that bottle and buy it again. You're going to buy whatever's new and different and what's next. But if you're the person in Ohio with this distillery, people open these distilleries and they don't realize what it takes to get that sort of national distribution or any sort of distribution to be able to sell the product that you're creating. It's tough. So there was a lot of we're going to open a distillery and then we're going to open a restaurant, a tasting room to be able to sell it. Well, a distillery and a restaurant are two very, very different business models. So we were seeing these, I was seeing these pop up all over the place and just a little bit of research, you realize how much capacity is out there, how difficult it is to sell it. And it became pretty clear that a little bit of research, there's a lot of good product available. Is that still true or have they all gone out of business since since you started? I don't think they have gone out of business. I mean, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of money to open a distillery. You're probably going to hang on for a while and not try to close it. So I think it's still it's still the case. So what happened then? What was the what was the thing that made you go out and actually do it rather than think about it? Because I, I don't know, I, I have lots of great business ideas. I sit around all the time thinking about my million dollar ideas, but I never actually go out and do them. So what what prompted you? Can you remember? Just to sort of just to see if we could do it in a way. To you, we see so many people. I see so many people who are. I'm going to start this brand. I'm going to start that brand. And in some ways, it was a challenge to see this opportunity to say, I think there is a space for this. Let's see if we can go out there and make it happen and do it in a way that is starting small, growing over time, doing it without a huge pool of money at the beginning, and just sort of take 20 plus years of industry experience, bring it to bear and see if we can make it happen. And that seems to be the opposite approach of a lot of drink startups. (laughs) Tell us how you came up with the name Hamlet Hound. Hamlet Hound. So Hamlet Hound is based up in the Hamlet of Copake in the Hudson Valley in the Berkshires of New York. And there are so many Hamlets up there. So we didn't want to make New York specifically part of the core DNA of the brand, but we wanted to have this sort of like city country feel and a hamlet just kind of, it has that sort of country chic vibe. And a hound, everybody loves a dog and literally everybody loves a dog. There have been studies that have shown that if 
a label has an animal on it, people are much more likely to pick it up. And if it has a dog on it, they're more likely to pick it up than any other animal. Wow. Oh. So, is this is this named after any particular dog? Do you have a dog, Christy? I don't have a dog. <laughs> uh, I have three children who are allergic to dogs. Oh. But <laughs> Celine, who was the manager of the wine shop at the time that we came up with this idea, her dog Nova was a fixture. And so the initial dog outline that is part of the label is Nova, our shop dog. And and then what we found out, Nova is a, she's a Chihuahua Terrier mix. I should know, but I don't. She's just really cute and she has very distinctive ears. So when you do brand extensions, do you have to find other New York stores that have got animals attached to them or have you got something else in mind entirely? In terms of brand extensions? Well, is there PJ down the road that's going to have his brand or have you got a, a sort of more structured way of, of extending your brand? Oh, I mean, in terms of right now, the, the main extensions would be just different flavors and each flavor when we launched the Ryan Ginger, we have a slightly different dog. The dog that's on the Ryan Ginger is from the general store that's next door. And that's a bull terrier and his name is is Bullet. Oh, so, so you are doing local dogs. These are all really local dogs. They're local dogs and we'll probably do, the next dog won't be necessarily a specific dog. It'll have something with floppy ears to kind of differentiate it. And that came from, oh. that came from talking to, talking to friends, showing them the design work, handing them a can, and then talking about our next flavor. And they literally <laughs> pulling out their phones and saying, well, what about my dog? My dog would be <laughs> great in the logo. So. <laughs> the next question has to be, is there anybody that you're going to really affect if you don't make a brand of their dog. <laughs> That's we're, we're trying to just use multiple breeds. So Nova, Nova and Bullet are the only two that will be very specifically named dogs and part of the founding story. Other than that, it's going to be dogs with cute ears. And, and Nova doesn't get royalties from this. You're, you're allowed to just paint him and use the image. I don't know if you can give royalties to a dog. I don't think Nova has a corporation yet. <laughs> <laughs> something to explore. Yes, yes. We talked a little bit about that you worked with some brands, but I mean, I think you are sort of your own market research focus group because you've worked in so many different parts of the industry. Can you talk a little bit more about your experiences? Yeah, well, so I have, I've owned a wine shop in New York City. My husband now owns a wine shop in the Hudson Valley. We've been retail focused for about 10, 15 years. And before that, I spent seven years working at Moet Hennessy on Hennessy Cognac, on internal distribution consulting projects, on the 10K rum launch, as well as wines. So I've seen everything from how big distributors work, how big suppliers work, how big brands work, down to how do the sort of thought leaders of the New York retail and beverage scene work. So I would like to say that I did the market research, but I think 20, 25 plus years of experience in this industry was my market research. There was clearly an opportunity for a higher proof brown spirit lead cocktail in a can at a premium price point. Coming from Moet Hennessy, you believe in premium price points. And it was just a matter of seeing an opportunity, being pretty sure that people would drink it if we made it. And going out there and figuring out how to make it work. Well, that's interesting. You know, with your with your big brand background, what do you think the big brands do successfully that the small people aren't doing? Well the big brands are the big brands are, are brilliant at 
taking a an established brand, a brand that's up and coming, but has a little bit of traction that's already starting to... The big companies are very good at taking established brands and growing them and continuing to build them and keep them sort of chugging along and keep that glamour in place. They're also very good at taking a brand that's a nugget of an idea that maybe is regional or national on a small scale and taking that brand and bringing it to scale. What they're not terribly good at is creating a brand from scratch. They don't have the patience to do it, nor should they. I mean, why why is it, do you think, that the bigger companies don't want to create these brands from scratch? Like what what is the pressure on them or what are the challenges of them turning those into something new? And I guess the reason I'm asking is because so many of the big companies I've seen, you know, instead of creating new RTD brands or hard seltzer brands, they're either acquiring small brands or they're just doing brand extensions like a Bud Light seltzer or something like that. Well, a brand extension makes a lot of sense because you already have the brand equity you already have the distribution, so it's a very easy rollout. Acquiring a brand makes a lot of sense because you don't have to have the patience to to get it started. My experience at Moet Hennessy on a rum launch was that the, the positioning was brilliant. The idea was great. Everything was very much in place to create this wonderful brand from scratch. But if you're a large company and you're trying to meet quarterly expectations and you already have this large business that's happening, a little brand, a new brand, isn't going to add much to your bottom line unless it's a home run straight out of the gate. And to have a brand that's a home run straight out of the gate, you're not doing necessarily the things that you need to do in terms of that discovery factor. The the sort of traditional knowledge of how you build a brand is you start in the on-premise, you get the bartenders behind you. I'm a retailer, so you also want to expand it to maybe some small retailers that, that kind of have a, a boutique focus. And then you get your press You build your business, you have that discovery factor, and then over time, you get bigger and bigger and bigger. At some point in between being this small discovery brand and becoming this big national brand, that's where the big companies come in and they can acquire it. And their skill is taking a brand and making it bigger and more national. They're very good at it. And it just it makes sense to acquire it as opposed to placing a whole bunch of bets on and seeing what's going to stick. There's plenty of people out there that are that are doing that. That's really interesting. So they rely on people like you building good brands, which they can then come and turn national later. So you you knew that there was bourbon out in the marketplace. Did you already have contacts or did you get on the road and go out tasting people's bourbon? How did you how did you find it? In that case, my, my husband started doing some research. Well, first off, we we knew we wanted it to be a New York bourbon because we're in New York. New York bourbon is great. But more importantly, because of the way that the licensing works, it's very complicated. We're not going to go into that right now. But if it was a New York farm product, we would be able to self-distribute it, which meant that we would be able to do it on our own without having to have a middleman, a distributor at the beginning. This limited, this was the case only within New York, but it was very important to the model and to being able to self finance it to be able to do this and build it on a small scale. So we knew it had to be a New York product. So there was no, you know, dreamy road trip founder story where we were going around to distilleries all over the country. Uh, I'll let somebody else do that. But the initial phone calls that my husband was making were 
kind of like, well, we see this canned cocktail out there. Let's try to figure out who might be providing the product. We wound up having a conversation with uh, Finger Lakes Distilling, who is, these are products that their own branded products that I've sold at the shop since the very, very beginning of when they were making them. So I knew it was fantastic quality product. I made a phone call to Brian and we were able to to just sort of say, hey, we're kind of thinking about doing this. And because we had that contact, the initial product that we were able to purchase, we were able to do it on a very small scale. So it sounds like the relationships that you've had in the industry have helped to launch the product. Tell us about this first run of product that you've gotten out there and what the reception has been. So the first run, well, we're actually on to our second run, but the first run, well, there was the first run and then there was the first run. Initially, we had thought that the well, so the volumes that you need to do to work with a traditional co-packer are huge and they require an awful lot of investment in terms of cans and products and we didn't want to do that. So it was through contacts that we were basically able to do a small run on a canning line that was about a 200, 250 cans for the first run. But before that, we had actually thought that we were going to do an initial run, literally hand canning using what's called an October machine. So we bought an October machine and, and I'd learned about these machines through a friend in the industry who during peak COVID times was working with bars to come up with their own canned cocktails. And we knew this machine exists. We knew that it wasn't hugely expensive relative to buying a million dollars worth of cans and a canning line. So we spent $5,000 on the October machine. And the intent had been to do a small batch of the cola and the, the bourbon and force carbonate it and hand can it. But in the process, we just got some learnings from talking about it, we, we increased our confidence that there that we could do a slightly bigger run. And at the same time, we worked with the co-packer to find time to be able to do a slightly bigger run on the line itself. And it just made sense to kind of skip that hand canning process and go straight to the line. Christy, can you explain what a co-packer is? So a co-packer is, because remember, we have a, we have a rectifier's permit in New York. We are not actually allowed to distill our own product. Many of the canned cocktails that you'll see out there are the result of somebody buying bourbon or vodka or rum or gin or whatever from an existing distillery. And then the syrups, all of the flavorings are from a separate supplier. And then they're brought to the co-packer, which puts everything together and cans it. So the co-packers have their, their licensed facilities and they have the canning know-how and the canning equipment. And that's what they do. Can you just talk me through. So when you've got your recipe, how does it work? Does it all just go into a big mixing bowl and then it ends up in the cans? Or do you have to put preservatives in there? Can you just, do you just mix it up and can it? Or is it more complicated than that? It is slightly, it, well, it's more complicated than that. And that's the the co-packer's expertise. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to go with the co-packer because the equipment is able to can it in a way that is sanitized. It's super clean. It's You, you don't have to worry about that because that's what they do. You do have to worry about some of the ingredients. Like if you have a cocktail that's got a really high citrus content, you might have to worry about it eating through the cans. 
I think there are certain alcohol levels where you have to worry about those sort of things as well. The other thing that you certainly have to worry about are the size of the cans and do they fit on the lines and do they have to change over the lines. So there's so much logistical work that goes into getting the product into the can and the co-packer is your best friend in that case. And does the co-packer, the co-packer takes the raw ingredients and mixes them together to create the unified product? Or how does that work? The co-packer in our case receives the alcohol and they receive the syrup for the for the cola and then for the ginger in the case of our two cocktails. That formula, that recipe for the cola, for the ginger, that's actually developed, in our case, developed somewhere else and then brought to the co-packer and they mix everything together. Interesting. And t- talk me through, how did you uh, come up with the formulations for the syrups? <laughs> so the cola, this is this is just another small town story. Everything happens in a, in, in a hamlet. When we we're talking about doing this. We were talking with Celine at the shop and that we were going to do a custom cola mix and we were starting to think about how that would work. And Celine had a friend from the shop, Finn, who was a beekeeper. And apparently, I did not know this, bees, you feed them little syrups. So Finn was making little syrups for the bees and thought, huh, actually, I can make syrups that might taste good as well. So Finn had made some of these syrups for mixing with seltzer or whatever, and Celine had tried them and knew that they existed. So when we were talking about doing the canned cocktail coming up with the cola, she put us in touch with Finn and Finn came up with the initial cola recipe. They gave us a couple different options and we picked the one that we liked best. When we were... Was your syrup tested on bees? (laughs) It wasn't tested on bees. (laughs) The bees just get the plain sugar water. There has been no bee testing in the creation of this product. No bees were harmed in the making of this cola. (laughs) But, but they're probably sad about it because it's very, very good. The humans get Finn's special recipes. <laughs> <laughs> so in that case, when we had initially thought that the first production run was going to be this very small run using the October machine and hand canning, the idea was that Finn would go from making very, very small volumes to a slightly larger volume, which would have involved getting a commercial kitchen and all of this sort of you know, more logistical fun. When we decided that we were going to go straight from our tiny little five-gallon test to actually the 250 case run, we needed to very quickly get Finn's recipe from, you know, little a half a cup of this, an ounce of that, da, 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 to something that was more scalable. So we worked with a fellow Joshua with a company called Drop of Joy in Vermont, whose skill is taking Interesting. those sorts of recipes and making them scalable. And what made you decide 250? Did you already have sales or were you simply confident you could sell them? It was the size of a barrel. <laughs> it was in order to sort of buy, to be able to get one barrel of bourbon, everything sort of translated to that's what 250 cases will be. Very glamorous. <laughs> the cans, it's interesting that you said that, you know, the cans have to be the right size for the canning line because I would naively think that people would build those specially for each other. But I guess canning is an art. What made you decide on a particular size and did it cause any problems? <laughs> the cans. I would love to say that we knew this going in. This was one of our, our big learnings, which we learned very, very quickly. I at least knew about this thing called legal fill sizes. So, 
within the alcoholic beverage industry, beer, wine, liquor all have different specific container sizes that they can use. In the liquor side of the industry, 250 is not a legal fill size. 200 mLs is a legal fill size. Most of the cans that you'll see of something like White Claw, of Cutwater, those things, they are, I believe they're 375s, they translate to 12 ounces. think that's the right number. Whatever that size is, that's the most common size. So most of the canning lines are set to use that size. 250 is sort of the next most common size, and you'll see a lot of wines that are in a 250 mL can size because what then they do is they package them up into four packs. So you're selling a liter, which is a legal fill size. A lot of math here. We couldn't use that standard larger can size because we have a 15% alcohol by volume product. We wanted our product to sit on the shelf somewhere between six to $8. If you're doing that larger size, you're looking at a product that's a lot more expensive. And then you have to have these conversations with people about like, well, it's more expensive because it's like one and a half drinks. And they're like, but I don't want it one and a half drink. I don't want to pay that much money. I don't care how many drinks it is. So 200 mLs was the legal size that corresponded to a single serving that allowed us to hit the price point that we wanted. Unfortunately, it's not the most commonly used size for the co-packers. So in order to get time on that line, they couldn't just say, hey, okay, we're going to put you in. They had to change over the entire lines, which means the scheduling is a little bit more difficult. So yes, lots of problems. Talk about some of the challenges that happened once you finally got that first run going. <laughs> well, luckily by design, most of the challenges are, are sort of more for comedic relief. But so we have the cans. The cans are all in our distillery and the distillery has heat and air conditioning, but we're up in the middle of nowhere and very often electricity goes out. So when the electricity goes out, you are sitting there watching the temperature in your storage facility drop and drop and drop, oh, no. waiting for it to come back on and wondering, am I going to have to get out of bed and drive up to Copake, and, which is two hours north of the city, and move all of these cans to I don't know, the house, <laughs> your car, <laughs> hug them, you know, hug them, keep them warm. You know? And we had so we had a little like a little camera that's aimed at the <laughs> thermometer so you can see what's happening that's that's charged so that when the electricity goes out, you can still see what's going on. So that was a little, you know, not so high tech <laughs> scenario that we had to deal with. We will eventually get a generator, but that's not quite in the budget yet. So yes, when you're when you're putting your business plan together, add in a generator. That's something we did not think about. Another just small thing where we sort of had to pivot was because of the the challenges to get onto that canning line. It was sort of when it happened, it happened. And the space on the line became available very, very quickly. And the labels hadn't been oh, printed. No. Well, the labels had been printed, but they hadn't 
arrived at the facility yet. And the co-packer had made the decision just to, we'll just go ahead. We're just going to get it done. And everything got canned, but it didn't get labeled automatically by the machine. So that entailed an unexpected hand labeling process where we were able to borrow the labeling machine from the co-packer. So, so how, does, how does that work? Like, do you have a big pile of cans and just when you feel like it, do you sit and label or how does it, how do you do it? We set up a little labeling session in the, in the distillery, in the storage facility. So we've got a stereo back there and every once in a while, we'll just go and have a little labeling party, have a glass of wine. Are you like, are you really expert now? Can you do it? super fast. <laughs> I will be honest, that's my husband's job. I mean, so that's thousands <laughs> of cans that you've got a label, right? But he is excellent at it. It's a lot of cans, but it goes a lot more quickly than you expect it will. And you can kind of do it in a batch scenario as they're labeled to order. But our second run, we made absolutely sure that nice. the labels would be there on time so that we, we don't have to do this again. So I have a question about your first batch. When the first one came off the, the line and it was labelled and you finally opened one, what was it like drinking your own cocktail? And did, did it taste different when it came out of the can from when you, you tried the recipe? We had done the recipe. <laughs> well, that was a fun moment cracking it open because you're like, please taste like it's supposed to taste. Please taste like it's supposed to taste. <laughs> but the initial, we had done a five-gallon test where we had the actual syrup that Finn had put together and we had the the bourbon that we knew we were going to use and we like kind of tried to carbonate it <laughs> by shaking it up. It's a whole other story. And we canned those. So those had been our test cans and that's what the recipe had developed based on. So we had already had the cocktail in a can and knew it was delicious. So when we opened the one off of the line, we were hoping it tasted like something that already we knew that what we had in the can was going to be delicious. And we knew what we had in the can from that first run should taste as good as what it would be if you poured it for yourself straight out of the bottles. And it was so good. It was so cool. <laughs> Are you tempted to drink all your own products? I, I just wonder with small batches and stuff, how much of it, um, how, how tempting is it to? <laughs> well, if I, if I were to take you to the distillery, you would know that it would be impossible to drink all of our own product. <laughs> <I see. laughs> we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here to have this conversation if we even tried to drink a case at one point. Because yeah. remember, this is 15% alcohol by volume. What was the absolute worst thing? of doing this? What was the unexpected, horrible stumbling block you didn't expect, if there were any? It's it's honestly like sitting there watching the temperature drop and not knowing if we would be able to do anything about it and wind up with 250 cases of frozen product. So, so now you've built your brand and everybody loves it and it's doing really well. What happens next and what are your end goals? Do you want to eventually sell it to a big company or is this your own project and you'll just keep building it. Well, everybody everybody says when you start building a brand, you need to know what your exit strategy is. I don't know exactly what our exit strategy is, but I kind of keep in my mind this idea of my guiding principle is a quote that I heard from Andrew Marinoff on a podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts because I drive around an awful lot delivering product, but he had this great quote you have to ask yourself, do you want to build a brand or do you want to be part of the party? And a lot of the money 
and a lot of the investment and a lot of the brands that I see out there, it feels like they're created by people who just want to be a part of the party. They see that there's money out there or they just want to have a fun spirits brand and that's what they're doing. We came into this knowing there's a lot of work. I wanted to build a brand and we've started that. We've put the seeds in place and I think they're really good seeds, but there's still a lot of growth and blocking and tackling that I intend to do as the owner of this company, but eventually it's built to scale. So I don't know exactly what the exit strategy is. The hope would be that At some point, once I've built it as far as I can build it, we find some support and we have have somebody help us to scale. What that looks like, I don't know exactly yet, but we're still a ways away from that. But that's the fun, is building it. So we've come to the portion of the episode called Last Call. And that's where we talk about something that we're drinking, something we're excited about, something that tastes great right now. So Felicity, what are you drinking? Right. Nobody can see this except me and Erica, but I'm holding up a champagne bottle that's got a label that is in garish gold and red. It's called Bissinger & Co. Grand Prestige, and it's a champagne I bought from Lidl Supermarket up the road. It's 20 euros, and I've drunk my way through all the supermarket champagnes in my region, and some of them are actually pretty good. The buyers really know what they're doing. Nice. So this is a this is a 20 euro champagne that I'm going to serve tonight with pizza to guests, and it's actually good. It's balanced and um, delicious and uh, good value for money. So well done, Lidl Supermarket. Yay. I love that. I mean, I love finding those super values that you feel like are your own secret find, but now everyone will know. Let me tell you what doesn't work so well. So I've, I've been to Lidl a few times. It's just up the road. And um, I've, I've become quite fond of their canned gin and tonics. And uh, until recently when the, the gin and tonics suddenly started to be corked. Ooh. And, and I had three in a row that had corked taint. And I was Really going to write to Lidl head office and say I'm a wine judge and your your cans are suffering from cork taint. And then I thought I'm not going to put in writing that I'm a wine judge and I I drink your gin and tonic <laughs> because my friend Alice Firing has nearly dropped me as a friend because she cares a lot about quality and she's caught me on the phone sometimes and she says what are you drinking and I go well it's a can gin and tonic from Lidl and she's nearly she's nearly stopped our friendship there and then. Oh, thin ice, thin ice. Very thin ice, exactly. So what, what are you drinking? It's probably much pressure. And- <laughs> Not at all. I, I've been eating out a ton this week. So when I've been home, I've been drinking this cute little can, which again, no one can see, but I'm holding up for Felicity. Oh. Uh, and it's, it's a little... Uh, 187 milliliter can, a non-alcoholic cocktail called Rose City Fizz by the brand is for bitter for worse. And I got to say this, this company, it's a small company out of Portland, Oregon. They forage and formulate all of their own products. And this is my absolute favorite non-alcoholic cocktail right now. And the reason is because so many non-alcoholic cocktails, they just don't get the weight or texture of a cocktail right. Yeah, that's right. It's watery, it's thin. And this this cocktail is thicker and viscous and I don't know how they do it. It has a beautiful bitter sort of flavor profile. It has cardamom, it has gentian, some berries in there for some fruitiness, but it's really the weight and texture that completely sold me on this whole line of non-alcoholic cocktails. Do you think it's the bitterness that sometimes works really well? Like I found that things that have got like 
tonic water with high level of quinine can substitute for lower levels of alcohol. It's that bitterness that does the job partly. I think it must have something to do with that. And then also it's the sweetness, which is interesting because on, on first sip, I expected this to have much higher grams of sugar content. But, you know, the entire, you know, calorie in this entire can is 45 calories and the sugars are 10 grams, which is, you know, fairly small amount for a cocktail. And so I know that they're using monk fruit, which is some sort of natural sweetener that doesn't have a lot of uh, calories in it. That probably helps. But it's just it's it's amazing that like this like textural component. It wasn't until I tried this N.A. cocktail that I said, like, I think it's really the texture that everyone else screws up. And that's why I like this one. So what I, I now have a, a thing for this weekend. I want to find out what monk fruit is. I have no idea. Oh, and we'll report back. We will report back. Yeah. All right. That's it for us today. Thank you, Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey, signing off. Cheers. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. And if you liked what you heard, help us spread the word. Follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. And if there's some aspect of the business that we have not covered, but you want to know more about, let us know. Felicity, how can people reach out? They should email us at podcast at businessofdrinks.com. We'll see you soon.